Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. to the Digital Works podcast. We're very grateful to have you on and give us, giving us some of your time today. Thanks for having me. Great. Do you want to give us a bit of background to yourself and uh, tell us a bit about what, what you think the Digital Workspace is? Yes, the background to myself is fairly easy. The way I typically uh, introduce myself is I break into computers and buildings for a living. So a lot of what I do is uh, what some people refer to as information security and what others refer to as ethical hacking. For me, the digital workspace uh, really is all about collaboration. It's about how do we work well together? How do we work well electronically together? And I think uh, that's probably been pushed to its uh, its boundaries recently with everybody working remotely and those kinds of things. I am in the office today, but our entire team isn't here. So even so, with me being physically in the office, I'm still working collaboratively with people remotely. And the digital workspace is the thing that enables us to do that. Great. I was actually looking at your background, wondering if it was a really good fake background or if it actually was an office. No, this is just the Connor office. Yeah. <laughs> There's no Zoom backgrounds here. That's why you can hear ping pong. Oh, great. Oh, that's cool. Um, so, so the background to us chatting is that uh, I attended a, a mentorship uh, training last week and you did a, an hour on uh, information security and, you know, as you say, what you described. I thought it'd be really good to share with everybody else. So do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on that? Yeah, so I can I can tell you how that started. That's a, a series of uh, mentorship programs for startups. So it's it's for the startup mentors. And what we're talking about is cybersecurity for for small businesses, scale ups, startups, and SMEs. And um, really, how that was posed to me originally was like, can you do an hour on cybersecurity? So. Well, yeah, but I mean, how do you crush cybersecurity down into an hour, right? So part of it is uh, security awareness and discovering the basics. So talking about how bad passwords are and why they suck. And a part of it is dispelling common misconceptions. So the misconceptions could be around who are hackers or what we might refer to as threat actors, to use the industry term for it. And a part of it is around um, how certain attacks work. So how do hackers crack passwords? What does password cracking mean? And those kinds of things. The idea being that uh, the mentors will hopefully, of course, become more secure in the way that, that they work, but also they can pass that on to the startups and the scale ups so that as they're concentrating on growing and concentrating on building products, they can hopefully keep security in the back of their minds as they do that. Great. Well, what have you seen now with everyone working from home with your, your business? I mean, your, are your customers now becoming more aware of the security that they need to have in place that they didn't have before potentially because of you know, having a building which they felt secure in? I use that with air quotes. Not necessarily. There's a lot of organizations who maybe don't appreciate what the risk of remote working is. A lot of organizations treat VPNs as though they're magic and they they don't necessarily consider things like the working environment that their staff are in. They don't necessarily consider things like the devices that staff members are on. And for a lot of uh, organizations, because they've made the move to remote work under duress, they haven't exactly had like a strategy or a plan for dealing with that. So for example, the certain organizations who've suddenly very quickly introduced a bring your own device policy. There's some organizations who've suddenly moved to remote working who maybe didn't have uh, a capacity for that previously. So I think it's had a big security impact and not every organization has necessarily uh, performed the proper change management to handle that. 
Yeah, I can believe that. I mean, if I look at how we've approached it, I mean, we've always designed to work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we've had those, you know, the training's always been there. And the minute we all went, went remote, one of the first things we did was redid, redid all the training. Uh, and the trainings are not sort of the, 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 the death by PowerPoint. You know, you sit there, we just throw it at you and you've got to absorb it. It's, it's scenario training. But in conversation with mates of mine, not everyone's done that. And, and it, is, it has been people working at the kitchen table with documents on the kitchen counter or the dining table that are sensitive with the family walking around. Um, and they've had to... Well, not- it's, it's not always the it's not always the family, right? Think about people who live in in shared houses. That that's quite common, certainly in city environments, for people to to share apartments or be you know three or four people in the same house. So it's not necessarily even family members. It could just be you know housemates. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you've got to you've got to really put um, an extra level of conscientiousness around what you're doing if it is sensitive. Um, and even you know sort of and only people walk around in their gardens talking on the phone. Yeah. Uh, not thinking about people listening in the other gardens to what they're saying. Yeah, I remember seeing um, uh, one person s- saying that their, their company had complained to them, saying that they need to make sure that they're in a private environment before taking sensitive calls. And the guy responds, like, I live in a studio apartment, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the other thing that we covered in that, in that session was around passwords and how easy it was to, to guess them. Uh, and break them. I don't know if you wanted to go through some of those. You obviously not going to show this the slide deck, but but maybe some of the topics you covered in that were quite quite interesting. Yeah, I think the the big thing with passwords really is that they're fundamentally broken, and there's in many cases just a better alternative. So things like multi-factor authentication, it can be implemented so that it's not such a security inconvenience, and it can prevent uh, a significant number of attacks, even quite sophisticated attacks. I think people think of multi-factor authentication just in the basic sense of maybe getting a a six-digit PIN number uh, sent by text message to your mobile phone, for example. And there's lots of different ways of implementing it. You can have hardware tokens, you can have app-based 2FA with a mobile device, you can have PIN numbers. And uh, all of these different methods have a different kind of convenience factor to them, but they're an improvement over passwords. The big thing with with, uh, password cracking or guessing passwords is that a lot of people don't realize how it works, and in particular, how quickly threat actors or hackers, if you prefer, are able to guess them. Very often, the the hacker isn't trying to log into the interface, but what we would do is we would, um, through a technical attack, be able to capture a cryptographically copy of the password. So some people may have heard the term password hash. It's a cryptographic cryptographically protected copy of the password. We get these in all kinds of different places. Um, A really good, easy example for people to think of is um, wireless networks. When your device connects to your wireless network, it authenticates over the air. So if my device is within the um, wireless range of your wireless network, then I can take a copy of that handshake, and then I may be able to take that handshake away and, and perform a crack or a password guessing attack remotely. And because we're doing that remotely, we're not uh, bumping up against things like uh, account lockouts. And because we're doing it remotely, we can, we can guess those passwords very, very quickly. So in the session that we did uh, last week, I, I showed some of the speeds that we can achieve for, for certain different kinds of password cracking. And on the machine that I was using in that demonstration for wireless passwords, I was able to attempt 6.5 million password attempts a second, which is, which a, is a huge number. Huge number. Are password managers sort of something that everyone should be using, in your opinion, Holly? Or what's kind of the best way for, um, I guess, individuals to protect themselves and then companies to, um, I know you mentioned MFA but or um, two-factor, but um, 
are those sort of the best solutions that we have currently to uh, put some protections in place? This is the problem with a lot of security stuff. You get down into the it depends area of security. So multi-factor authentication is great, and that's why I would lead with that. But in some instances, people might find that um, just systems don't support multi-factor authentication. And if that system doesn't have it implemented so you can't use it, then you need to look for an alternative. Password managers to take them in isolation are great at dealing with the fact that we can reuse passwords are a major insecurity and password managers can be a nice balance between convenience and insecurity. So it allows you to pick one long random non-deterministic password that's then used to protect your other passwords. It can be implemented in a, a way that's nice and convenient. So you can use it on a mobile device, for example, and then have something like face ID integration or touch ID integration to um, make accessing the password manager nice and easy and it just saves all of your passwords for you. Um, some people worry about, you know, what if the password manager gets hacked? Um, that's a legitimate risk, and it's something that we should consider within our threat modeling and consider within, you know, um, how we handle risk. But for the average user, typically, um, a weak, easily guessable or reused password is a significantly bigger insecurity than a password manager would ever have. So it's the, the balance of impact and prevalence there. But yeah, password managers are awesome and multi-factor authentication is awesome and you should use both of them wherever you can. But when you look to implement them, you know, don't just look immediately for, you know, what is the, the most secure option here? Try and get a nice balance for, for usability and security. The reason I say that, it might sound unusual coming from a, a security person to say that is, if the, the workflow, if using that tool is, is so inconvenient, if it's so much duress for you to use that solution, using a password manager, using multi-factor authentication is awesome, but, but, it, but it has to still enable you to, to work and to do your job. Yeah, yeah. so like we use LastPass and that's exactly why we use it. It's, it's got a very nice, I mean, it's not the, it's not the best interface and, and to your, your point around the friction of using these things. I find LastPass a bit painful to use sometimes to share credentials, but it is pretty secure and, and it is one of those that if, if someone were to, were to hack into them, and I think they were hit once upon a time, um, they actually they actually protect your your materials quite well in that it's it's um, encrypted on the device. Yeah, LastPass has had a, a few security vulnerabilities, but one of the things I like about them in particular is they're very forthcoming with it. So mm. the, the information about the security vulnerabilities is just on their website. So they, they had a breach, I think it was back in 2015, and all of the information is on there just in terms of like, this is what happened, this is how we responded, this is what the vulnerability was and how we mitigated it. That's a nice thing to see. I mean, like, it's better than an organization sweeping that under the carpet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, then, and, that's, and that's almost your, your, your trust been built as opposed to being brought down by them being hacked so that they do the right things when they get when they get you know dealt a blow so to speak i had a question for you around sort of no passwords um when i was with one of the banks we were looking at actually moving completely away from passwords using biometrics and this, that sort of thing well, what are your thoughts on that so so passwords uh have security issues and if you can effectively replace them with something else you know single factor authentication where the factor is not a password but um you know a device that you have access to that can uh make the, the job of the hacker more difficult you know if there's no password to guess but it's some of the system but the the problem of authentication the problem of passwords is is much bigger than that so if an organization is looking at you know how do we get rid of passwords all turn uh, entirely and go to a no password solution some of the things to still consider are things like, okay, if we're authenticating with a device, what happens if a member of staff loses their device? How do they gain access in that case? 
are there um, risks around, um, you know, the help desk, the IT help desk being able to grant people access, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, passwords suck, and I would generally recommend anywhere that we can minimize the impact that a weak password would have. But authentication is somewhat of a bigger problem. No, definitely. Um, with with uh, people working remotely and, and that, do you think there's a need for almost a corporation to have a policy that, that houses have to meet a certain level of, of security standard? So one of the things would be, how do you enforce that? I'm generally against policies that you can't enforce. And I would generally be against any policy that might disadvantage somebody. So if you have a company requirement that, you know, staff must have to be in an isolated environment when taking calls and those kinds of things, um, people who have house chairs who may be somewhat disadvantaged well, wouldn't be able to work there. So there's a, a balance to be had there just in terms of like the diversity side of things and making sure that people from less privileged backgrounds aren't disadvantaged by that. Um, I think there's there's other ways of, of handling that problem than enforcing things through policy. And then also generically, anytime a company enforces something through a policy, you know, they, they should have some way of, of making sure that, that, that that's the case. Uh, to give you a good example, there, it's really, really common to see companies put things in their password policies like, oh, passwords must not be based on a dictionary word or something like that, and then have no technical enforcement to, to actually prevent you choosing, you know, password one, two, three or something. Um, so policy and implementation should line up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, 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 uh, we, we talked a bit about bringing your own device and then that, that being a way for people to work from home. Yep. Uh, I wonder if there's not a trend at some point to bring your own app where you start providing the same you know, through, through a custom mobile app or, or something like that, that, that you can um, almost sandbox the functionality and the security through that. Yeah, um, bring your own device is often implemented in that way. So um, there's a lot of mobile device management solutions, MDMs, where that effectively is an app that's installed on the user's device so that their personal profile, their work profile is separate. And also the work profile can have whatever policy enforcement the company wants. If you want a certain password length or if the company wants something like the ability to remotely erase the device, you know, the, the staff member won't be upset about the fact that the company can remotely uh, delete all of the data because they're only deleting the data from within that containerized environment. Um, so that's the thing that's been around for a while. And it's definitely something that I would um, recommend organizations look at if they're looking at BYOD, bring your own device, um, as opposed to the kind of um, approach of just like, oh, yeah, use your phone for work things if you want to. You know, there should be some plan there to, to enable uh, the protection of data, but also ensuring that the company can check if something's gone wrong, if data is leaked, and if it has, then having uh, functions like the ability to arrest devices. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. I mean, data leak protection is, is such a difficult thing to to monitor and action on um, unless you start really owning the entire ecosystem. And, and having worked with a lot of VDI infrastructures, that typically is the business case, is that you're controlling the whole environment and, and the user's really disconnecting via a thin client into a data center. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to secure that data, which works, but it's expensive. It's a very expensive solution. Not everyone can do that. I mean, it's 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 expensive um, in some regards, but but less so in others. So if you have um, you know a virtual desktop environment where people can just um, connect into uh, a, a standardized environment. Um, whilst that might be um, expensive to set up, or it might be expensive from a licensing point of view, it, it can be better in other ways. So it can have lower administrative overheads because all of the machines are standardized. It can be faster to set up. If you have a new member of staff join the company, it can be faster to get them up and running. So I think uh, organizations should consider more than just things like licensing costs and, and look at, you know, how does this make us more efficient as a business? 
No, you're 100 right. It's worth the expense of it. It's that, it's that hurdle to begin with. Can you spend the, the the amount of money you need to spend? I think with what's coming out of Microsoft now with WVD, I think there's an there's an, an AWS compete to that as well. It does make that barrier a little bit lower, so that other organisations that don't have the big the big budgets can get in, get on board. Yeah, there's some there's some solutions in that regard where you're you're paying effectively per user as well, which is a bit more flexible for organisations as they scale. Because, of course, anytime you, you implement something, if you're trying to scale up, you need to make sure that it's good for the company today, but also good for what the company is going to look like in three months or six months' time. Definitely. What, what are your thoughts on sort of post-COVID? You know, what, what, do you think there is a post-COVID? Do you think we, this is going to be forever? Or would you see a future where, and, and what would that future look like from a security point of view? Um, I've seen a lot of different things from a lot of different organizations, all of which have a security impact. So. Some organizations are talking about um, spending some time in the office and some time not, so maybe two days a week. Um, Those can have uh, security implications in terms of social engineering and and physical access risks. So um, if there is a less standardized approach to where people are, where people are working, those kinds of things, it can just be harder to to maintain a, a secure profile and making sure that people know what to do in the event of people accessing the office who maybe shouldn't be there, who should be accessing the office, those kinds of things. I've also seen some organizations say that they're going to move away from like a headquarters office um, model where everybody goes to the same building and instead have satellite offices. That can have a risk in terms of, well, there's more geographic areas to secure. Mm. So everything everything uh, affects security in a different way. And I think one of the things to do at that point, like whatever you're planning is do threat modeling. So threat modeling is just taking a look through, you know, how does this impact security and then how do you mitigate those risks? If you've got a lot of small offices uh, distributed across the country, one of the risks might be, well, what if somebody accesses one of those networks and plugs a device into an unattended network port or something like that? Well, we, we have protections in place. We have things that can mitigate those risks. So network access control, for example. But, of course, the company needs to take a look at what are those risks, come up with a plan, and then implement the solution before kind of doing things under duress. Yeah, you can't rush it, that's for mm-hmm. sure. And it almost it almost feels like you need to have a, a checklist that you can provide. You'd also have a generic checklist, and then you'd have a checklist that would be specific to, you know, are you using shared office space? Because I think there's, there's a lot of companies using shared office space, at least for satellite offices, while having an HQ. Yeah. Yeah. What what does a a satellite office look like as well? I think a lot of companies are considering these things from maybe a cost perspective, you know, saving money on the real estate. And that's fine. But would a satellite office maybe be a a co-location space? Um, That would be cool. But of course, that brings along different security risks as well. Yeah, we worked in a rework for a long time and, and besides being very noisy, um, rather loud, uh, from the point of view that you could see through everyone's glass uh, walls. Um, there's just information everywhere, which not everyone took the time to have, you know, privacy screens or um, hide their, you know, wipe their whiteboards down. I mean, you could have quickly walked around and found out, you know, what the business did just to get through their walls. Yeah, I mean, there's that stuff, but there's also things like um, how is the internet connection provided? You know, if you're in a co-location environment, is it a, a shared internet connection? And then if it is, how do you make sure that your connection to the internet or your connection to cloud resources is secure? It's, a, again, a fairly easy thing, typically. Virtual private network would, would enable a secure connection, but it takes some thought to make sure those things are in place. Yeah, definitely. 
I guess I wanted to maybe shift gears just a little bit. And um, Holly, for some background, something that we talk a lot about on this podcast is um, actually something you had uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, which is just kind of like a lot of trade-offs that get made in both information security and IT between, you know, different factors like security and usability or functionality and um, sort of balancing this whole you know, these different forces to make something um, that will work, you know, best for your employees while still protecting the organization. I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts or opinions on sort of the relationship between IT and information security and sort of yeah. what the best model is there. Yes, yeah, so I'll give you a good example of, of where you might get some, some tension between IT and security would be um, applying security updates to services. So um, some uh, IT people might be concerned around things like if we install an update, will it disrupt a system? Will that system need to reboot? Those kinds of things. Whereas the security team might be really concerned around the fact of if a, if a security update isn't applied, would, would we be vulnerable? And of course, there's a balance to be had there. What the balance might be in that instance is, well, what is the security update? Because whilst in security awareness training, we might say something really generic and really broad, like you should install all security updates as soon as possible. Not every security update is the same level. You see this, for example, with uh, Microsoft. So when Microsoft releases security updates, they grade them. So you have critical, important, optional updates. Um, so critical updates are, are typically major security vulnerabilities, possibly in some instances vulnerabilities where there's a, a publicly known exploit for that vulnerability, and those should go in as soon as possible. Whereas the optional ones, they're a, a less concern. So organizations, um, you know, everybody who stumbles into this problem of security versus IT, and they, they need to come up with a plan for dealing with that. One of the plans for dealing with that, depending on company scale and budgets, could just be having a test environment. If you can roll that security update out to a test environment and see if it causes disruption, then that might give you more confidence to make that, uh, that change. Or alternatively, there could be some policy around, okay, critical updates go in as soon as possible and important or optional updates go in to some other schedule. But it's a, it's a thing that an organization should, should definitely take a look at because it's a very, very common problem. The thing that, I, that that we talk about with one of our other guests is that security by design step is often missed. So, so security by design is, is, is at the end. So you've built a solution, you need to come back to apply some policy or some regulation, and you realize that your solution actually hasn't been designed in a way that makes it easy. So you end up with a very complicated, frustrating experience for, for someone who has to use it. You know, things like... Um, you know, multi-factor doesn't work, so they, they build their own way of doing the factor authentication with an email, for example, using magic links, yeah. which is different to, say, using an authenticator app with, with the randomized six digits. Uh, so that's what I was thinking about as you were speaking, is, is, is that sort of murky place that you can get, you can get stuck in. Yeah, a lot of people think of security as well as just always an inconvenience, but it isn't always the case. I think a good example of that would be um, password managers. Password managers can increase the convenience because they're handling passwords for you. So instead of having the kind of usability, accessibility issue of trying to have unique long random passwords for every site, it's effectively password escrow, so it's handling that for you. Mm. Um, and I mentioned earlier using uh, password managers on, on a mobile device and then you know leveraging features like Face ID or features like Touch ID so that you're getting the benefit of security without it being an inconvenience. The counterpoint 
always is, of course. So if security isn't well implemented or if it isn't implemented at all in the system that you're trying to use, you can't get that benefit and you maybe have to find it elsewhere. And then we end up with non-standardized approaches and all kinds of problems. Yeah, it's funny you say that because in, in a way you look at how commercial, uh, and, and the analogy is for me is F1 racing versus the, the, the average car. So most new technology for, for a motor vehicle is tested out specifically, specifically around safety and speed. Um, you know, in the in the racing arenas, and then it, it filters back into via the manufacturers into the the, the sort of day to day cars, and it's and it used to be the same thing in, in the consumer world for technology is that most things were were driven by big organisations with big budgets, pushing the limits to to deliver or, or meet some regulation, but that's almost been flipped around now because the, the average consumer has gained. Um, because of you know the likes of Apple and and Samsung etc. driving their, their mobile devices, this better experience. Um, where, for example, you mentioned this header that you know you don't know how to use a password manager, but if you look at at the Apple operating system, there's a password manager built in, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been there for ages. But I remember working for an organisation where we we kept putting on the list and it kept moving further and further down the list because it just it just felt like a complicated thing to bring in. Meanwhile, it was probably would take away some complication. Yeah, I think one of the problems there as well is if, if companies don't enable staff members to, to do these kinds of things, you know, if you don't enable staff to use password managers, what, what you'll find in some instances is they are using them. They're just using them in a non-standardized approach. So maybe they've got the password manager on their home phone instead of their uh, work device, those kinds of things. Um, it, it can be really frustrating. And you do see this sometimes with, with websites as well. If their website isn't compatible with password managers, it, it's just pushing people towards insecure practices or, or at least non-standard practices. Yeah, and, and also putting things in browsers, you know, storing it in your, your browser with password cache, which which I've never been a fan of um, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, and one of those is, you know, you've got to trust the company that built the browser to be worried about it, not just putting some functionality and that looks cool. There's, there's that as well. But there's also with with any of these um, solutions that we've talked about today, it's like what happens when it goes wrong? Mm. So, you know, I've just advocated for having a password manager on your mobile device. What happens if you lose your phone? And yep. again, there's the solutions for all of those problems, right? But it's like, okay, I've stored all of my passwords in my browser and then, you know, dropped my laptop in a puddle and it's broken. Now I can't log into anything. Yeah. Or, you know, my um, mobile phone is, uh, the screen's cracked and I can't see any of the tokens. I can't log into anything. There's solutions there. But again, it's a it's a thing to, to think through as an organization, as opposed to finding it yourself where your IT manager's dropped his phone and that's it. Now everybody's locked out of the company. Yeah, and it's the same with when you, when you talk about that, that pass, password list technology, you know, having a YubiKey, for example. Um, you know, if you lose a YubiKey, which is a physical key to log you in with, how do you get another one? And what do you do in the time it takes to get the second one from when you lost the first one to actually be able to work? Yeah, and it, that problem gets um, somewhat worse as well if you if you have non-technical staff and you're trying to you know help those uh, staff members have more secure practices. They, they just might not know what the best thing is to to do there. So there needs to be some awareness training to go alongside that within the company, not generic awareness training around like, hey, password suck, you should use something else. But this is what you do in these instances. This is what you do if you break your phone. This is what you do if you know your laptop's inaccessible. Have you seen? Uh, we, you know, from, from a from a children's point of view, any education that's been worthwhile, or, or do you think that's a gap that needs to be filled? 
I think one of the problems with with security that you know might be relevant when we talk about children is um, oversimplifying security. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, young people are pretty tech savvy these days. They've grown up with a lot of devices, and the usability thing isn't necessarily a problem. But if we try and oversimplify these things. Uh, or, or dumbing it down so that we can talk to them about security. We miss some of the details that can be important. So I very often see in security awareness training um, a conflation between connecting to a website where the connection is secure. So talking about HTTPS websites yeah. and then connecting to a website where the website can be trusted. So that's in the context of phishing. And just because your connection is secure to the website doesn't mean the website can be trusted, but they often get conflated. So you see people saying things like, oh, when you're receiving an unexpected email, make sure that the, the link is a HTTPS link or make sure you have the, the padlock in your browser. Those kinds of things, they're not relevant within that context. You know, Having a secure connection to a hacker's website isn't going to give you the protection that you think it is. So oversimplifying things can can sometimes cause problems and, and definitely the difference between a secure connection and a trustworthy website is one that I see sometimes conflated. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder if there's not a, a level of, of educating at a, at a young age things like being aware of protecting your data. So you mentioned the HTTPS. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe less technical, but at least being aware to, to look at those things or, um, you know, most kids will grow up today with email um, and social media accounts and how do you, you know, how do you approach that? How do you behave on those, those sort yeah. of things? Well, you can, you can approach these things in a non-technical way. We've just had a, a quite long conversation around cybersecurity and uh, passwords and those kinds of things, mm. but we haven't got into the details around entropy and all of the kind of cryptographic mm. fundamentals, because you don't necessarily need to, to have somebody who's informed about the risks. So, you know, just because a person might be non-technical or might just be young, um, you, you can still explain to them what those risks are without getting kind of uh, knee deep in technical detail. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it is it is a horses for courses approach. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was I've used this example before, but I watch sort of the, the kids around us and how they're on devices all the time, and and not really worrying too much about what they what they're doing on those devices or what the information they're sharing. Um, and, and a lot of that's pushed on the parents to know and to teach them. Most of the parents don't know what's good and bad. Yeah, that is that is true. Um, in in terms of the whose responsibility is it? You know, I think a lot of people might just fall back to the parents should do it. But if they don't know themselves, then you know there needs to be some resources, and there are resources out there. So you know. Within the UK, for example, we have the National Cybersecurity Centre who puts a lot of resources out there. Um, a lot of those are focused around um, business, but trying to simplify things for, for people so that they understand you know, the different categories of risk and those kinds of things. So, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to fall onto to the parents. That there can just be you know, resources perhaps put forward by the government and things like that. I mean, if, if someone wanted to get into cyber, being this, this is your, your area of expertise, where would, where would you point them to start off with from an education point of view or getting their hands dirty? Entirely depends on, on who you are. And I think this is one of the things with um, with cybersecurity where you'll, you'll hear people say things like, oh, you don't need a degree. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't get one. It doesn't mean that that doesn't work for you. I think that the, the best part about cyber is there's a lot of different approaches. And if you're to go to university and get a degree, then you could get an um, ethical hacking degree. Or, or like myself, I have a master's in information security, so it's a little bit more generic. That is a path in. 
Um, alternatively, you could go for a technical apprenticeship. You could just do hands-on. You can do the hobbyist approach. There's a lot of different ways in. I think that the first step for somebody who's kind of interested in security and doesn't know where to start is, you know, realize that security is a huge field and try and get some overview knowledge, you know, try and uh, work out what parts interest you. So, so what I do is that the breaking side of security, right? It's the penetration testing, as we call it within the industry. Um, you might like security, but not like the the breaking department. You might want to work on the defensive teams, and you want, might want to work on the analysts teams, or those kinds of things. So the thing, the place to start is just you know realize it's a huge industry and take a little look around at what the different jobs are. And then when you find out the the job that works for you, then look at how can you get those skills. And the emphasis there is on, on you, what, what works for you. So there's academic approaches, there's hands-on learning, there's things like um, for the security side that I do, there's things like uh, vulnerable virtual machines. There's, there's a lot of different ways in which you can pick this up. And I don't think you should ever be kind of shoehorned into an approach that doesn't work for you. No, I agree with that. I have a friend who's trying to move into it now. And and I've sort of said the same thing. You need to go look at what you, you need to understand the, the ecosystem because it is big, as you say. Mm. Um, and then he, he's got a question on one of the courses to do. And it's a good course to do in the sense that it's an essentials course. Yeah. Um, but then it is about finding a network, finding people that are doing it right now and, and sort of getting the day, the, the day job view of what it is. Yeah. And it's completely fine to change your mind as well. You might start start making moves towards a secure development role or something like that and then realize breaking departments more interesting and, and make a move. Because all of that knowledge, all of the, the, the fundamental IT knowledge, all of the security knowledge is it's going to be useful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, there's a level of also being, because it's quite a young industry in a lot of ways, the, the more diverse your background is, the better. Um, there's a lot of technical people in the field, but actually coming from, say, marketing or or a business field and coming in from that angle might be more beneficial in some respects. Yeah, absolutely. Or even within IT. So, for example, we recruit from sysadmin backgrounds where people have a good networking understanding. We recruit from software development backgrounds where they have a good, you know, building applications um, knowledge. Or we recruit you know, graduates in from ethical hacking degrees straight into, into penetration testing roles. So there's a lot of different ways to sidestep within the industry, within broader IT, but also within cybersecurity. Um, yeah, so I guess on, on this vein, are there, um, I'd be curious to know since we're sort of on the career, uh, conversation, Holly, sort of what, what are the, what are your, you know, what are the, your favorite parts of the job? Like, why did you decide to, um, specialize in the breaking side? And then also like, are there any, um, sort of skills or qualities that you think really set people up for, um, success in, in that kind of a role? Even within the breaking department, within penetration testing, there's a huge variety of roles. So no matter what kind of person you are, you'd probably find something here that, that is interesting to you. So I'll give you two good examples of that. When it comes to things like exploit development, that's really hands-on, needy, technical stuff. You're probably going to spend a lot of time staring at a command line. Whereas on the other side of uh, this same job role, there's things like social engineering, which is a lot of face-to-face um, -face interactions, a lot of um, communicating that could be preparing and sending phishing emails, or it might be physical access into buildings. It could be um, coercing people over, over the phone. So we've got everything from kind of independent working on highly technical things right up to social engineering. So in terms of qualities, I think the big thing is just don't discount yourself. If you see a certain stereotype within this industry, don't think that you don't match that. There could still be a role for you. And you are absolutely right that there's a big place for, for people of diverse backgrounds. And um, the big thing there would just be, well, take a look at the roles, find the parts of the roles that you like the most. And then no doubt there'll be an organization out there that works well for you. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I know we're sort of running up a little bit on time here, so I wanted to shift uh, a little bit to the future conversation, um, if that works for you all. But actually what um, I've been thinking about this and I was actually scrolling LinkedIn because there was a post that I wanted to uh, kind of pose to both of you because it caught my eye the other week um, and it was from Citrix. They ran a poll uh, that said, according to their research, by uh, 2035, implanted tech could make employees exceptional at their jobs or doom them to burnout? Would you ask employees to go under the knife? And until um, I'm going to wait to reveal what the yes, no split was on this, but I'd love to hear what both of you think about um, if that's going, if that's like an eventual, you know, eventuality like that we do implant attack on employees, or if that's just kind of like a no go, like, um, you know, sci-fi uh, experiment. <laughs> I absolutely don't under any circumstances think my employer or my government should have any control over my body. Mm -hmm. So there you go. <laughs> That's a really direct and really blunt answer, but no, absolutely no. not for me. Well, I think where we are now, I wouldn't trust them. Mm -hmm. and, and if you just look at the amount of conspiracy theories in that are floating around because of this virus and this pandemic and they call it a scamdemic, et cetera, I don't think anyone in good, in good, conscious will allow the government to to do that but i think you know a couple of generations from now it might become normal Okay. I guess it's a good time for me to reveal what the split was on the poll. So it was 88% no, which is, it's, it's high, but what really struck me was the 12% yes, that there'd be over, you know, 10% of the around 400 people who answered this poll who uh, could see that uh, happening in the future. So just thought it was interesting. Uh, well, I, well, I think it comes out to trust. Um, and I don't think many, many people trust their governments to pick, you know, at the moment. So you probably get a very high no. But if things are going well and, and there's, a, there's a clear benefit to doing it, then you probably would see more yeses. So I could take that result. The, the counter argument is which government? So yeah. uh, one of the mm -hmm. difficulties you have at the moment, of course, is um, if you travel, if you take an electronic device through an airport, then you can you can pass through several jurisdictions on a journey. And, you know, which government? You might you might infinitely trust your own government and then you might travel on holiday or for work to another country where the laws or the regulations are slightly different and, and that could cause you an issue. Yeah. I mean, I guess personally, I'd be much more keen to do some sort of, you know, either like a, you know, some sort of just face ID or fingerprint scanner or whatever for to be passwordless like that very much appeals to me. But um, I, I, I'm struggling to see any other um, I guess, strong application. I mean, I, I see some security applications, I guess, for the implanted tech, but I think there are other ways you could do it without, uh, you know, an implant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, bringing it to science fiction, so there's a couple of book series that I've read where we're having, uh, where Elon Musk is going with his brain thing, having something mm, right. the brain to allow you to, to be instantly connected and download data and all that kind of stuff. I would definitely see value in that. Um, there's, there's, um, there's an interesting link here into um, the US legal side of things in terms of the, the Fifth Amendment. So I'm not a lawyer, but it's an interesting thing to look into for those who are interested in terms of um, compelled speech under the Fifth Amendment. So it's my understanding that um, US law enforcement can't force you to disclose a password, but can force you to unlock a mobile device that's protected by biometrics. So if you have a, a, an iPhone that's protected with Touch ID, they can compel you mm -hmm. to unlock that. But if it's protected yep. with a PIN code, they currently can't. So there's those regulations as well. So when you think of things like implants, how that plays into your compelled speech is, is important. I mean, this is a... Sorry, go, go I was just I just wanted to say that, um, I mean, this is a big thing, even with all the protests and everything that's been happening in the US and travel and... Um, and anything else, when Face ID came out from um, 
Apple, it was a big conversation around like, you know, if you're going to a protest or if you're going to, you know, do something, turn off your face ID um, and, and switch to a, you know, a different uh, code or something like that. So that well, you can't, that, um, your phone can't be cracked. Yeah. There's, there's this thing that you can actually uh, disable um, the biometrics on iPhones with, without unlocking mm-hmm. them. So that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a, again, a security awareness thing. And if you're passing through an airport, if you're passing through certain jurisdictions and you need to, to turn those things off, or I guess more directly for some people, maybe, you know, if you're being pulled over by the police, you can disable those things without unlocking the devices. And, you know, for, for some instances, those kinds of things are important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember, and I don't know if this is cooperating, but I think at Hong Kong airport, when you walk through, they're doing some sort of facial recognition. And this has been going on for years um, to speed up passport processing. I don't know if it's still running, but but there was a, a thing for a while. Yeah, a lot of airports have uh, biometrics for those who have biometric um, passports. But again, the the concern isn't necessarily the the technology; it's it's how it's used and, and who controls it in that way. Um, you know, first ID is a, a wonderful thing that increases convenience, and in certain instances, is is great. But to be able to have warrantless searches is not great. So. Again, it's just it falls into that problem of securities. Well, it depends. Yeah, and, and actually, that example you mentioned the facial recognition. I remember there was a case in the US where a lady was they were they were trying to get her to open her phone, and she refused to open it, knew the password, and then just and then because of facial recognition, they were able to answer, open the phone by pointing it at her. Yes. Yeah, so that's a that's a Fifth Amendment issue within within the U.S. That's a law that that fits under, is my understanding. But um, yeah, that that's how that works. Um, uh, as an interesting detail for those who are concerned by that, um, Apple therefore introduced a feature where you can disable the biometrics just from the phone. Depends on the version of the phone, but power button and the volume button together will, will disable that. Um, so if you ever are in that situation, then you can you can protect yourself. And I think this this gets into that that difficult kind of policy area where some people would say, well, the police should be able to do, you know, law enforcement should be able to do investigations and those kinds of things. And yeah, I agree. That's why warrants exist. I need to go and figure that out for my phone because I think that's a useful feature. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, I think we're out of time. So do you want to maybe just tell everyone where they can uh, find you on social media? Twitter.com forward slash Holly Gressel. Super. Uh, and LinkedIn as well would be? It's the same one. It's Holly Gressel. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for all your time today. It's been great chatting. Um, awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, Heather, anything from you to, to tie up? No, I just, I really appreciate the conversation, Holly. It was really interesting. And uh, thanks for diving into it with us. No problem. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.